and where you had not your normal run-of-the-mill generic Republican, but you had a, uh, my wife is trying to get me to stop using the term wacko, so I've gone with uh, exotic and potentially problematic. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today, Charlie Cook, founded the Cook Political Report in 1984 to provide nonpartisan analysis of elections and campaigns for the U.S. House, U.S. Senate, Governor, and President. We had a good conversation about how our politics and the Cook Political Report have changed over these many decades. So, after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Charlie Cook. What do Blue State, Sierra Club, and Indivisible have in common? They all use Civic Shout to grow email lists that raise money like clockwork. And now, so can you. Instead of vaporizing money with Facebook ads or burning bridges with spam, a new wave of digital directors are helping Democrats and nonprofits acquire opt-ins and nail their monthly goals with Civic Shout. Environmental Action called Civic Shout a wildly better way to grow your email list. And Clarify Agency saw a 200% return on ad spend in just two months. Head to civicshout.com forward slash partners to learn more and schedule a demo. That's civicshout.com forward slash partners. Charlie, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. Charlie Cook. I was born and raised in Shreveport, Louisiana. Worked in a campaign in high school, a U.S. Senate race. Came to Washington to go to college. Worked on the Hill. Worked in various campaigns for a polling firm. And in 1984, I started the Cook Political Report and started writing a column in Roll Call. And later in 1998, switched over to National Journal. Thus, a career happens in one paragraph. Yeah, that's the very short version. I am very interested in, in political entrepreneurship. Could we talk a little bit about that decision to start the Cook Political Report, which is now a very well-known brand name? Talk to me about what your life was like at that time and what the challenges were. In high school, I'd been a debater. And in high school debate, you debate one public policy proposition for the year. and one hour, you take the affirmative side. And the next hour, the negative side. And you learn that there are two sides to everything, and truth, justice, and the American way isn't usually on just one side. But I came out of it with an appreciation for nuance and compromise and knowing that there could be more than one truth at any given time. Came to Washington, went to college, as I said, worked on the Hill, worked in some campaigns, worked in a polling firm. But by the early 80s, and I'd grown up on the Democratic side. By the early 80s, I found myself voting for Republicans almost, not quite, but almost half the time. And I wasn't becoming a Republican. I was becoming a swing voter. And I was trying to figure out how can I stay involved in politics, but not work for one side. And as I said, you can't work for both sides. So I came up with the idea of a political newsletter that would come from the point of view of someone who had worked in campaigns and someone who had worked as a pollster to analyze races. 
I had worked at one point for a political action committee and sort of I knew what PAC managers were looking for. I had worked with and around lobbyists, and so I knew what lobbyists were looking for. So I came up with a newsletter. There were other political newsletters at the time, but none of them were really designed for someone that professionally needed the information. So I took my $6,000 out of the Senate Retirement Fund, and my father-in-law co-signed a bank note for $10,000. In 1984, I started a business, and the first few years, we lived pretty much off of my wife's salary. And starting in about 1990, 91, 92, it started turning the corner. Gradually built, added one person, and then another and another, got up to about six. So it was looking for a way to work in politics, but not work for either side. So tell me about the notion of feeling like a swing voter. What were the sort of things that made you lean Republican? And what were the sort of things that made you lean Democrat? I grew up in the South. I was a Democrat, but I'd worked for a conservative Democrat. I didn't have strong ideological leanings in either direction. Pretty centrist person. Also, when you work on the Hill, one of the things that can happen is you you meet people that are in the other party or people that are of a very different ideology, and you find they can actually be nice people. And you meet people in your own party who you may agree with a lot, who you think is a complete jerk. It sort of frees you from being tethered to one side or the other. But I didn't find myself feeling loyalty to either party. So it seemed like a natural. Did there ever come a time when that was tested where you felt, okay, now I'm really in the camp of one or another, or I'm really unhappy with what's happening in one party? Oh, I'm constantly unhappy with both sides. <laughs> it was tested every day in the sense that people in the party I came out of thought I was bending over backwards going the other direction. And people in the Republican Party were wondering whether they could trust me and whether I was going to play straight. So you were tested every single day in your relations with the campaign committees, with various consultants in both parties. You just have to learn to navigate it. I've had some good friends who are Democrats who this has strained a friendship or two along the way, but I've made friendships on those sides. For a lot of people, politics is like a religion. There's good and evil and right and wrong and horrified at the idea of becoming friendly with someone of a different point of view. My goal is to be right, to be objective, and for people to see me as having been objective. Whenever I have a, a partisan thought about a candidate or something, I try to kind of purge it, subordinate it, because it's somebody else's job to figure out who should or shouldn't be president or senator or congressman. My job is to try to figure out the race, understand it, understand what's going on and why and what's likely to happen. And I think one of the things that makes it very difficult and why a lot of political reporters, I think, are not very good, because they are unable to filter out their own personal politics, and they bring a value judgments into their reporting. I think political journalism has gone way downhill over the last five, 10 years because of that. So even in the Trump era, you comfortable going by the same, I'm just going to try to figure out what's going on. And, you know, I'm not going to be bothered by election denialism or, or January 6th or things like that. Who I personally prefer is irrelevant to what I write and what I think. And, you know, I could be appalled about somebody, but still think they have a good chance of winning. 
I could like somebody a good bit and think they're a good person and think they're not going to win, but you just have to be able to separate that. I've worked in the Capitol building, literally. I, I was horrified when I saw it, but I don't allow that to color my judgment when I look at races because I don't think it should. So going back to this founding, you said you took some money out of retirement. What did you need that money for? How did you employ that to do a startup? Originally, a friend in a law firm gave me a free office for a couple of months. Then I sublet an office space from some lobbyists. What I did at the very beginning, the newsletter was on eight and a half by 11 paper stapled in the upper left-hand corner and mailed out originally. I printed up the first couple of newsletters. I got some lists of every major lobbyist in Washington and sort of political insiders in Washington and mailed them once a month, the first two or three copies of the newsletter, and then sent solicitations and 100 or so subscribed and then started growing up from there. The newsletter, really until the last handful of years, I don't think anybody had ever made any money from a political newsletter, that it was kind of a loss leader for doing speeches and things like that. Now, that did change. The business model did evolve just in the last 10 years. But you know, I liken it to I'm a house painter and it's my truck and your truck doesn't earn your living, but you have to have your truck to make your living. I plowed a lot of my speech money as I started making money doing speeches back into building the newsletter and hiring and building a staff and marketing, all that. Did it strike you as a good business or were you just like, this is what I want to do with my life and I'm going to do it come hell or high water? I never saw myself as a business person. I never aspired to be a business person. I hated every moment of that part of it. And back two and a half years ago, felt liberated when I, for the first time in almost 40 years, didn't own and run a business. You know, it was something I had to do, but I never liked it. For me, I like politics. I liked elections. I like watching elections. I like talking to people about elections, but it was required to do this. I mean, nobody was going to pay me to do this for somebody else. You set yourself up as an expert and then people start to hire you to talk as an expert. When I look back before the newsletter, it's like every job I had prepared me to do what I ended up doing, even though I didn't have any idea of what I was going to end up doing. But whether it was working at a campaign committee, working in a presidential campaign, working for a polling firm, setting up a congressional race, working back on the Hill for a leadership committee. Every one of those jobs helped me to where I helped develop some skills and expertise that worked out when I did start the newsletter, even though you would almost thought that was my plan, but it, it, there was no plan. You know, a lot of what your newsletter was, was ratings of House races. House and Senate. House and Senate. And you would talk to the candidates and get a sense of them. And I came out of a political science department in the early 90s, and I remember studying models of congressional races, and they would take certain inputs and run a regression and come to a prediction based on like these kind of inputs. That seems like a very different thing than you were doing. Were you aware of that kind of political science going on, or how did you think about the rating business and how to do it well? Well, I never saw someone do that successfully. You need data, things like 
candidate quality congressional quarterly at one point was trying to to assess that. But that's very different than actually talking to somebody. A lot of races are fairly predictable by the district or by the presidential vote in the district, but there's a lot of variance in what might happen in a particular race that goes to much more qualitative things. In the House, you know, 90 odd percent of the races are not contested in any meaningful way. And so those those are easy. You don't need to talk to anybody about those. It is researching the ones that are either are competitive or have the potential to become competitive under the right circumstances. Those are the ones that you have to really study. Some people have said in fairly recent years, you know, why should we listen to you or to Stu Rothenberg or Amy Walter or Larry Sabato or Nathan Gonzalez? Why should we listen to you guys? We've got Nate Silver. We've got Nate Cohen. And I respect those guys a lot. And I think they've got some great tools. But there is not a Major League Baseball team that does not have on staff statisticians doing sabermetrics. There's not one. But there's not one of them that's fired all their scouts either. And it's a matter of sort of blending the quantitative with the qualitative, the subjective from the objective, and blending it together. I come from a school that is less on the quantitative side, but have moved slightly more quantitative, but still not not there there. David Wasserman on our team, our senior house editor, my old team, is a good bit more quantitative, but it's marrying the two together. You can tell a lot sitting down. I mean, if you've already kind of researched the the state, the district, you've watched it over years, you know something about the people that are there and how they vote and what's worked there and what hadn't. And then you sit across the table from a candidate for an hour and talk to them. I think you could come up with a pretty decent idea of we would start off with tell me your life story. You know, where were you born? Just sort of walk us through your life story. And it gives us an idea of who they are, but it also makes people more comfortable. And then we would talk about issues back when issues mattered. They don't so much anymore. And then talk about the campaign. What should we know? Why do you think you can win? And you sort of develop other questions. My former colleague, Jennifer Duffy, our Senate governor editor for a long time, and you know, one of her pet questions was that she asked Barack Obama when he was a state senator coming through running for the Senate, you know, if your opponent was coming in here this afternoon, what would they want me to know about you? Things like that. But you just kind of get a feel for them and get them to describe their state and district. And you kind of listen very carefully and see how that jives with what you already know. It's just developing instincts and sort of overlaying your instincts and what you learn with what you already knew and then watching it very, very carefully. Back in the old days, this is all pre-internet, Congressional Quarterly used to have a, a clipping service where they subscribed, I think during odd-numbered year, about 60 or 70 newspapers from around the country, from every state. And then during election years, it would balloon up to a much bigger number. And you would get, during the odd-numbered year, delivered to your office twice a week, a stack of photocopies about this big legal size of major political articles from each state in alphabetical order by state. And by the time got into election year, it was about that thick, coming three times a week. And that was particularly great before the Internet because I think they only had probably at most a dozen and a half, two dozen subscribers to the service. But you knew more than anybody else around town. The other thing was to be dealing with 
campaign consultants and party committees, but we basically didn't use quotes. We were basically saying, explain to us what's going on. What do we need to know? And if people aren't going to be quoted, they aren't going to be cited, then uh, a lot of times they'll open up and a lot of uh, smart ones will sort of make deposits in the capital with an A bank and then make withdrawals. In other words, they would uh, give in here or there, but earn credibility so that when they told you about somebody else, you'd be more inclined to take what they say seriously. You've kind of figure out pretty quickly who's a straight shooter and who's a bullshitter. You know, the people that were just chronic bullshitters, you just stop calling them. It seems to me that any particular, say, House race or Senate race is a combination of what's happening nationally with what's happening in the state or district, as well as what the particular candidacies are like. There are clearly years where the wind is blowing one way or the other, and that has quite a lot of impact. How do you think about incorporating national and local forces into a particular estimate of a particular race? I didn't really believe much in that or, uh, or put too much stock in it. Certainly, there were better years than others until 1994. And 1994 was the first sign of things getting truly nationalized, of our congressional politics getting really nationalized. And I vividly remember that year because Republicans needed a net gain of 40 seats. And you could go through all the competitive races. And if you gave them every conceivable seat that they could win, you might get them up into the low 30s, but you couldn't get them to 40. What was your prediction that year? I think we had in the 30s, high 30s. But the thing is, it came in at 52. And when you have an election where, in that particular case, there were candidates that the National Republican Congressional Committee didn't give a dime to that won. That happens to be the one House election that I studied when I was in grad school. And I remember taking each state and sorting the districts in the state by presidential vote for Democrat or Republican. And you could see really what was happening was there was a sorting going on and conservative Democrats were getting wiped out of seats that they were holding. It was part of the parties being separated. You're left with liberal Democrats. You're left with conservative Republicans, by and large, not completely. Yes, to a certain extent. But keep in mind, in 94... I mean, 1992 certainly wasn't an election like that. 92 wasn't, 91, 88. I mean, you really hadn't had 1980, the Reagan. Okay, that that was a real one. Um, 82 was a little rebound. 86 was more of a correction where it was big in the Senate, but basically that was Republicans losing seats that they had picked up back in 1980. So 94 was the first. I mean, yeah, I'm not disagreeing with you. But it was not as obvious, and those districts weren't quite as obvious. But let me back up a little bit. Back in, I'm thinking April or May of 94, Ben Scheffner was our House editor then. We were over, as we would do, and go sit down with each of the two House campaign committees and go through from Alabama to Wyoming, go through all the states, all their, their races. And we finished up, and a guy named Dave Dixon, who's now a media consultant, but was the political director at the DCCC, 
we had finished going through all the states and all the others had left the conference room and he and I were just standing there talking. And he asked me, have you noticed anything weird going on lately? And I said, no, not really. And he said, well, we're just seeing some strange numbers in a wide variety of races. And it was places where a Democratic incumbent ought to be in the mid to high 50s. And they were in the low 50s. And people that should have been in the low 50s were in the high 40s. And it was in suburban. It was in rural. And I was trying to kind of get a handle on that. And and I had not really noticed it. But once he mentioned it and I started looking for it, I started seeing that pattern emerge. What was interesting about that is that years later, when Republicans had a majority in the House, I remember having dinner at the Capitol Grill with the the political director and the field director of the NRCC. And this was back when uh, George W. Bush was in office and it was for his uh, second term, midterm election. So that had been 2006. And this one guy asked me, he said, Charlie, you were there in 94. When you saw that building, what did you see and when did you see it? That's the thing about we've been around this long enough where you've been doing this longer than a lot of the people at the campaign committees. But he was curious, what were the signs that something weird was going on? And sure enough, that's what ended up happening at that point. Republicans had tons and tons of money, and it certainly didn't look like anything was going to happen. But gradually, those signs started appearing. I don't know who really said it. Uh, Some people attribute to Mark Twain that history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Well, you know, every election is different. They're like fingerprints. They're different. But there are patterns, and there are things to look for. And over time, you study something long enough, and you kind of get to the point where not every time, but a lot of times you can kind of anticipate things. So you know what you're looking for and what to disregard and what to pay attention to and what's normal and what's not normal. Actually, the the flip of that uh, continuation of the Southern story is back in 2000 and uh, I guess that was six, Democrats were picking up seats that the DCCC didn't think they had a chance of winning. And I remember the only knockdown drag out screaming argument I have ever had with a House or Senate campaign committee chairman was with Rahm Emanuel. He was chair of the DCCC that cycle. And he thought that we were, from his side's perspective, overly optimistic and that we were raising expectations. And actually, I don't think it was really about expectations. Is It was bigger than he thought it was. What I was seeing was bigger than what he thought it was. And I ended up being right, but it was where putting aside what people may want to see happen is what are you seeing it and how does it mesh with your experiences in the past? I'm curious on that to ask you about 2022, because I saw you on C-SPAN later talking a couple days before the election, and it seemed like you and other guests were anticipating a more standard midterm than what actually happened. How do you think about 2022? Yeah, I think it was kind of a bifurcated election. It was one election happened basically nationally, and the other election happened in about two dozen high-profile, very competitive places where you look at the national vote. I mean, the only thing in midterm elections that are on the ballot in all 50 states and every district is the House. 
Democrats received 10 million fewer votes in 2022 than they had in the previous midterm election of 2018. 10 million fewer. Republicans had 3 million more votes than they had in 2018. And the percentages kind of flipped over on the totality of the election. The thing behaved more or less like a normal one. But then you got into these high profile races and where you had not your normal run of the mill generic Republican, but you had a uh, uh, my wife is trying to get me to stop using the term wacko. So I've gone with uh, exotic and potentially problematic (laughs) kind of MAGA candidates. You could say election denier types, that sort of thing, where it was just a bridge too far. Whether you're talking about Kerry Lakes in, in Arizona or whether you're talking about Don Boldix in New Hampshire, but there were about, I'd say, four or five Senate races, four or five gubernatorial races, four or five St- Secretary of State, Attorney General, and about a dozen or so House races where Republicans nominated these really exotic candidates, and those were the races that didn't behave like you would expect and where they underperformed significantly. And so the macro election results wasn't too different from what you would think from a midterm election. But what happened in about two dozen dozen races was very, very different from what you might have expected. Arizona, both both Senate and governor, take Georgia. You had eight, uh, nine Republican statewide, elect, uh, statewide candidates, nine. Eight out of nine won, all of them except Herschel Walker. Now, was that a bad year for Republicans? No, it was a good year for Republicans. It was a bad year for a Herschel Walker. And you just saw that case after case after case, about two dozen that were the difference between Republicans picking up a Senate seat or two or and ended up losing a seat, the difference between picking up only nine seats versus picking up a couple dozen. So I, I take that point, and I think that's kind of become a lot of people's understanding of 2022. No, I, I, I would disagree. I don't, oh. think it had, does it, I don't think that's become their understanding at all. They think that millions and millions of voters turned out on the abortion issue because of the Dobbs decision, and that didn't happen. It just flat didn't happen. I've heard a lot of places this idea of a bifurcated election. I I see what you're saying about turnout globally. That makes sense. Well, I'm not talking about turnout. I'm talking about votes. But, well, that is turnout. Well, we don't see many defections. But in those two dozen races, you actually did see more, in this particular case, Republicans that actually did vote for Democrats. Not a huge number, but more than normal. You did see pure independents that broke more towards Democrats. Do you think that could have been because there was a tremendous amount of very targeted Democratic money that went to those specific races? Or do you think that was just something that would have happened anyway and it wasn't so much a campaign effect then? In those particular races, you had tons and tons and tons of money on both sides. And in terms of campaign spending, there's a law of diminishing returns. And in the big races, man, that, 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 that got passed up months and months before the election. And so it, it's not a matter of one side being well-funded and the other side underfunded. It's two overfunded sides. 
I don't really buy that. I think it's a combination of that 8 or 10% that are the true, pure independents that don't have lanes either direction. And occasionally it's defections. It's not often, but in this particular case, it was both. Do you think that we can draw any lessons from what happened in 2022 for 2024? I mean, if you're talking about a exotic and potentially problematic candidate, you have very likely Trump heading that up for one party with as much exotic and potentially problematic behavior as anybody would have. Well, I mean, I'm talking about specific races and Trump is Trump and he does whatever he does. But I think we have to wait until after Republican primaries occur. We saw this happen back in 2010 and 2012 in the Senate, where 2010 was a fabulous year for the Republican Party. But in several key Senate races uh, in those two elections, 10 and 12, in Missouri, Indiana, Delaware, where Republicans nominated people that were just batshit crazy and they lost races they should have won. And, you know, there's just no two ways about that. And that's exactly what happened in quite a few races in 2022 that made these high profile races and particularly where you had sort of election denying kind of candidates. And the fact that this happened on secretary of state and attorney general races is really pretty amazing. I think that that had a great deal to do with what happened. So does that apply in 2024? I don't know. Tell me who wins these primaries. When you look at the recruiting that's going on on both sides, which is often a pretty good tell, not always, but pretty good tell for like who thinks it's going to be a good year. What are you seeing so far? Or is it too early to tell? Well, first of all, I think recruiting, I think there's a a little bit of a misjudgment about what recruiting is, that it's almost like they're with baseball sitting up in the in the stands and watching minor league teams of games. Sometimes it's it's this recruiting. I mean, you've got Mitch McConnell spent an enormous amount of money trying to stop five, six, seven Republican Senate candidates from winning nominations. I mean, they knew that famous quote from back over the summer that he was afraid that they just had the wrong candidates and it was over his dead body, but it was primary voters that were jumping the shark. They were going for candidates that were very, very popular within the base, but couldn't win a a swing voter if their lives depended upon it. So the question is, are they going to do that again? And we don't know. I mean, that's one of the biggest variables in terms of the Senate. It does seem like Trump and others have learned a bit from that and are trying to steer things more towards winnable candidates. I don't think Trump's paying much attention at all to Senate races or House races this cycle. I think his plate's full. I mean, now, he did talk in a bunch of really bad candidates that won nominations and did, in fact, cost Republicans a bunch of seats? Absolutely. No question about it. But I don't see his fingerprints out there a whole lot of him trying to affect many races. There's a grudge one here or there. But my guess is his plate's kind of full. How do you assess the strength of the two parties nationally at this point? Do you think they're very evenly matched? Do you think own party has some kind of advantage organizationally and in the electorate? Well, I think both of them are pretty screwed up. Go back 30, 40, 50 years ago, and you had two ideologically and geographically diverse parties. 
that overlapped a great deal. Each party had moderating influences that kind of kept their party from going off into a ditch on the left or on the right. When I first started working in the Senate when I was in college, New York State had two Republicans, Maryland had two Republicans, Oregon had two Republicans, you know, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, Arkansas had two Democrats. I mean, you had overlapping parties and that, yes, the Democratic Party was left of center and the Republican Party was right of center, but they weren't that far left or that far right. And where in those days you had a lot of ancestral partisans, people that were they were Democrats because their parents and grandparents had been Democrats. Everybody in their area had been or Republican. And I mean, it's just kind of the way people used to, what religion did they start out? Well, my family was Methodist, so they tend to be Methodist. When you saw that starting to break down, first for organic reasons, then you had the rise of talk radio. I think Republicans would have had gains in 94 without Rush Limbaugh and conservative talk radio, but I don't think they nearly would have been of that size. And then next you had the rise of cable network news on the left and right. And then you had the rise of internet and websites that would be tilted greatly one way or the other, and then social media and et cetera, et cetera. I think the uh, 1987 repeal of the Fairness Doctrine that opened the door for talk radio taking on the role and then later cable, I think it had a huge impact on the political dialogue in this country. So that what you saw was the parties moving very, very far apart and where the center of gravity in each party was moving either left for Democrats or right for Republicans. And about that time, anybody that was in the least bit liberal left that was in a Republican party left and went over to the Democratic side and vice versa. And then you started seeing more moderate centrist voters stop voting in primaries. They didn't like their choices, so they stopped. And so it became more self, even more self-fulfilling. So that now 19 members out of 20 are in more danger of losing a primary than they are of losing a general. Wherever the political center is for the country is pretty damn irrelevant to where things go. And where if you've got basically... 45, 46% are going to vote Democratic no matter what, and 45, 46 are going to vote Republican no matter what. So you only have eight to 10 that are truly in the middle. What that means is you don't have landslides anymore. You just don't. And no landslides mean no mandates. And nowadays, for a party, a national party, no win is too small to declare a mandate. I mean, Republicans just barely, barely, barely were in control after 2016. But they thought they had a mandate to slash taxes and do this X, Y, and Z. And Democrats, the same thing in 2021, when Jesus Christ just barely won. What used to be seen as a yellow caution, like proceed with caution. And now it's Katie bar the door, get as much as you can, as fast as you can. And if you didn't have the structural impediment of the Electoral College, I think there would be the potential for a third party a meaningful third party, but it is a structural barrier that you really can't get around. And presidential politics tends to dictate things below. There's a kind of a relatively small club even now of election analysts that get heard. How do you think about your place in that group and how do you differ with them, would you say? Oh, I mean, they're sort of generational changes. I mean, Stu Rothenberg was my biggest competitor and very close friend, as he remains today. It was interesting that two people from extremely diverse backgrounds agreed a lot. And and I used to 
tell people when I see Stu disagreeing with me, I know there's a 50-50 chance he's right and I'm wrong. And, and I think he'd probably say the same thing. Did you ever think of joining forces with him and joining the businesses? No, no. Why, why would you do that? I mean, I, you know, I, what I always liked was we had a great relationship where, uh, to me, if you're doing anything in life worthwhile, you're going to have competition. And the question is, are, is your competitor going to stab you in the back or is he somebody that you can you know, deal with and enjoy spending time with? And I, we, we've always enjoyed each other's time. We used to do a lot of dog and ponies together, whether it was uh, a luncheon for the Senate Democratic Conference retreat or whether it was sitting down with Dick Cheney before the 2006 election over breakfast at the residence and talking about what we were seeing in the races. Did that with both. You mentioned before, like Nate Silver, when he came up and he had a more statistical background and more modeling background, and he launched a website that for a while was getting a lot of the eyeballs of political animals, I guess. What was your attitude towards his analysis and people like him? Once I started reading him regularly, I grew to really respect it. I don't think it was a replacement for what I did, but... There wasn't anything he was writing about politics that I didn't read. And I'd say the same thing about Nate Cohen. I read very carefully everything that my my former team writes and does, as well as uh, Ethan Gonzalez and his team at Inside Elections and the Larry Saptos crystal ball people. I didn't find it threatening at all. It was just different. But I certainly didn't want to be an ostrich and s- stick my head in the sand. My goal is to try to be smarter. And the way I get smarter is to listen to people that either think differently or do things in a different way than I do. And you could actually keep your ears open. You actually might learn something. I've only met him once in my life. It was um, actually in 2009 or 10, before Obama's first midterm election. And we were on a panel together in Pittsburgh. And uh, I expected he was going to do this. And we ended up agreeing a whole lot, which surprised me, actually. But no, I have an enormous amount of respect for him and what they do. There are some people that are in that space that I don't have any respect for. And there are a whole lot of political reporters that I have no respect for. I don't think they understand this stuff in a lot of cases. You talked about delivering your first newsletter as mailed eight and a half by 11 pieces of paper. Can you tell me how the distribution of your content changed over time as, as the business went forward and the country changed? Yeah. I mean, when we finally went dig, all digital, I mean, it broke my heart. I didn't want to do it. It made sense. We had to. Our, our subscribers benefited because, you know, the time it took to research, write, edit, proof, print, get out – it was like a damn near a month. We didn't come out that, that, that regularly. I used to tell people it was a periodical in the truest sense of the word. It, it went out when we finished it. But we were able to deliver a hell of a lot more content uh, than we could when it was in paper. I mean, our biggest issue was, I think there was one that was like 160-something pages long. First of all, I cautioned arm and leg to print and to mail. And for years... I mean, to this day, there are big pieces of like the at-a-glances and stuff that I print out that I don't want to read it on a screen. And my rule of thumb about what went in the newsletter was if I were still working for a political action committee, what would I want to be carrying into a meeting with my board where I could look up 
whatever, anything, you know. And there wasn't much that they would need that I wasn't going to supply. You mentioned feeling relieved to no longer be running a business, which I assume you end up selling it to Amy Walters or what was the, what happened there that has changed your relationship with the firm? Well, I, I mean, I, I didn't like the process of owning. I didn't like, you know, worried about, you know, are you going to make, make payroll, that sort of thing. And where money that, gee, I really could use putting some of this in the retirement, but instead I'm doing it to build the business and all that and, and unemployment insurance and taxes. I, you know, I, I, there's just, Stuff that I just never, never, never enjoy. And so walking away and not having to worry about that stuff anymore, it was one of the happier days of my life. And I don't play any role whatsoever in running it and only a minimal, uh, a minimal relationship. You know, I do a couple of things with them, do some conference calls for some of their site licensees and appear when they do joint things occasionally, but I'm separate. My email address is still there. So, was it your call or her call to change the to keep the name but change it a little bit? How did you decide to? It was a process that was going on for six or seven years that I certainly wanted to to hand it off, but I couldn't and wouldn't hand it off until I knew it was self sufficient. That I had to wean it off of speech revenue, and so it could stand on its own two feet. And it wasn't until we developed the capability of having monthly subscriptions that boom, 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 you know, that, that kept going until someone canceled, that the ability for a small business like ours to do that, that enabled us to broaden our reach significantly, that it actually turned the corner financially, that and site licenses, so that it, it could be self-sufficient. So. I'd say I would have done it a lot earlier, yeah, but I couldn't have, so it happened as soon. But in terms of the decision to change the name, I didn't have a problem with that. When Stu sold his newsletter, it changed completely, and his name's not in it anymore. Was I relieved that that didn't happen? Yes. But I understand Amy wanting to have her name in it, and so that's, that's, that's perfectly fine. Did the enterprise change after that transaction? Did she do different things with it or the, the team there? Yeah, there, there's some things that do differently. There are priorities that I had that they don't and priorities that they have that I didn't. And a lot of it's more generational. Um, I mean, I insisted on virtually everything being available in a PDF form because I'm a print guy and I want to print shit out and I want to have a notebook. And there's a lot less of that. They put emphasis on other things. So it, it's different, but it's sort of you know, generational. And, you know, I think it's probably run more like a business than I did. Catherine Hamm runs the business and she has a very good job. And, um, you know, she has a nose for business and I never did. If there was a young person who had that same hankering to get into the political information business now that you had back in the early 80s, what would you advise that person about how to go about it? I wouldn't have the faintest idea. See, I mean, the thing is, Stu and I were coming online right as C-SPAN was, right as CNN was, which opened the door. I mean, prior to then, there were ABC, CBS, NBC, and they weren't putting anybody on as experts that were in their late 20s, early 30s. I mean, that just wasn't happening. 
and C-SPAN and CNN offered an opportunity. And there was a, a couple of years where Stu and I were on uh, inside elections with uh, Judy Woodruff and uh, Bernie Shaw every Friday. That was great. And first time I went on Meet the Press was, I think, 93, first of a dozen, dozen and a half times. You could break through then. And, and it was back uh, when we were coming up and the cable, C-SPAN, CNN offered opportunities. And it was back before the broadcast networks. And I did some consulting at different times for CNN, CBS, and NBC. And Stu did, did variety as well. But it was also before the push for diversity. It was a time when, let's just say, uh, middle-aged white guys uh, had more opportunities than they have today, more opportunities than they deserved, I would add. Uh, but we had great opportunities in those days. And now there are other people in other groups that have the opportunities that they deserve. But it was a, it was a good time to be us. So that a, a young person, new person coming in, while the internet affords a opportunity. It, it sort of lowers the entry barrier, but there's just so much free information out there that I wouldn't have the first idea how somebody could break through now. I mean, I think we were we were very lucky that we came along when we did. But nowadays, you'd make a short video on TikTok or something, right? Yeah. And it's just an entirely different game. Our fear back in the old days when we were two little entrepreneurs was that either CQ or National Journal would decide, hey, that's something we want to get into and basically come in and bigfoot us with a lot more money to spend and that we'd be out of it. And as it turned out, it, that didn't happen. I ended up aligning with National Journal and having been at Roll Call and he did more of the Roll Call and he still has a relationship with them, which actually ended up being CQ as well. But it's a different time. I'm not saying there's no way someone could do it, but they would have to do it a real different way than we did. So how would you like to be remembered by people who follow this space and follow elections in the United States? That he um, built a brand, tried very hard to be as objective as possible and was wrong more than a few times, but was right a lot more than that and helped people kind of understand or a different way of, of looking at things. So, uh, no, I'm very, very comfortable. It's kind of weird to have had all kinds of incredible opportunities that were just amazing, but that to know that, okay, 98% of those are in the rearview mirror because I'm kind of past and other people are, are today and other people are the future. Did better than I ever thought I ever would or deserved, but I still get a kick of... Uh, one of our sons is in journalism, and every once in a while, he'll have some, I say, I didn't realize that was... Your dad is the, the Charlie Cook? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, it, it I, was... I assume uh, that you get that. Yeah, yeah. He had a boss to say, you know, I've worked with for a couple of years, say, I didn't even know. Right? I'm curious if with all this history and experience and somewhat of, I've picked up of, about your attitude about the parties and, and changes since a different era of politics. Are you optimistic or pessimistic about American democracy going forward? I'm very worried. My wife calls me a pathological optimist. And yet you're worried. Yeah, you don't start a business with nothing without being an optimist. And that, you know, to me, it never occurred to me that we would fail. That's the way she sees it. 
But I, I, I'm very worried, and I know this country has been through a lot of really, really difficult times before. When people say, gee, things are worse now than they've ever been. And I, I'll say, you know, you think it's actually worse than when four million Americans were slaves? Do you think it's worse than the depth of the Great Depression? I mean, but at the same time, I am worried about the process. And I, I have to work extra hard to make sure that that does not affect how I do my job. But I worry. And I don't, I think one of the things that worries me the most is that there are some still really good people in government and good people getting elected House, Senate, Governor. But they're, the percentage that are adults, that are serious adults, is going way down. And the kind of people that were running for office back in the 70s, 80s, 90s, for the most part, aren't running now. Or very few of them are running. And I understand why they're not. I don't blame them. But I worry that serious people have stepped back in a way and that not so serious people are in charge. I, I think there are a lot of people that would say that, but they would attribute all of that to the other party when I see them both as pretty screwed up. You know, at different times, one side may seem more, it may be more relevant that one is particularly screwed up, but I don't see many problems in one side that doesn't have the potential or analogous on the opposite side. There are a few, but not, not that many. I think we disagree on that a little bit. I think there's substantially more concern about the Republican Party. And I think a lot of other analysts see that right now. But it's certainly true that neither party is without significant flaws. At the risk of straying over, and I think that the 2016 election was exhausting, emotional. I think the four years under Donald Trump was very tumultuous. I think President Biden, who I met in 1993 and like him and think he's a really good guy. And I was appreciative when he came to our uh, 20th anniversary of the Cook Political Report party. But to me, he got nominated because he wasn't Bernie Sanders and he got elected because he wasn't Donald Trump and that the country wanted to bring down the temperature and dial things back. And to me, when you only win the presidency by basically 126, 128,000 votes in four states, that's just barely winning. And that what the country thought it was getting was center left, incremental, transitional figure, and not historic transformational. And I think that when either party and Republicans did this after 2016, and I think, or 2017, and Democrats did in 2021, when you have a party that overreaches, you're inviting the other party to retaliate and escalate. And impeaching, throwing people off the ballot, all these things, it's a spiral downward that I think has, has cost the process a lot. I think there was an opportunity to lower the temperature that didn't occur. I mean, it seems to have been lowered enough to give a window back for people who are still contesting the 2020 results to still be contesting it because they weren't taken on. I think you could argue the other way quite persuasively that the problem was not sufficiently punishing misbehavior by the Republicans, by Trump 
after January 6th and beyond. Maybe if we had healthier parties and we could have impeached this president and taken him off the table, maybe we wouldn't have an ongoing cancer in the body politic. I have a friend who is a Republican, had been involved in the Nixon and Reagan administrations, and we had an ongoing debate over Trump's impeachment. He was for and I was against. And the reason I was against was not that I was sympathetic to Trump, because I really wasn't, but to me, it was never going to work. And it was just going, to, it was never going to succeed. It never had the slightest chance in the world of succeeding. And it was just going to. It seemed like for a minute there, if McConnell had held to it, they would have had the votes, but he didn't. He decided to back off, you know, and he was afraid for his own skin. Well, I think when people feel threatened, I think when people feel threatened, it leads them to behavior that's very unusual and destructive. And that I think one common denominator in both parties is that the people in each party now see the other party as threatening democracy in the country as they see it. It's a two-way street. Each side feels that way. And not everyone in each side, but elements in each side. And that triggers behavior that is not constructive for a, a representative democracy. I completely agree with that. Charlie, is there a question I should have asked you that I failed to? Oh, I don't remember. No, this has been fun. It's been fun on my side. Appreciate you taking the time. Anything else you want to say? Mm, no, I can't think of it. I'm glad we didn't do this over alcohol. I probably would have become even more opinionated. <laughs> <laughs> I actually am glad to provoke some opinions and to hear where you stand. And I appreciate all your service to the country over these years. Wow. Not service. That was Charlie Cook. He's at cookpolitical.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.